we firstly started with uh, research based on uh, a nationally representative survey of young people aged 18 to 24, and it found a high prevalence of what's called food insecurity. And that's where young people can't access sufficiently nutritious or culturally appropriate food. And we decided to dig a bit deeper because there's a stigma attached to food insecurity. Uh, the stigma being it's very hard to admit when you're not getting enough sufficient food. And so we thought, right, well, there's a problem that we need to investigate a bit further. So we've conducted this quite small study, uh, very tentative kind of study, but looking at international students in Melbourne, Australia. We interviewed 22 and surveyed 64 more, measuring the severity of food insecurity using an international instrument. Um, what we found was that uh, food insecurity arises due to limited time to source and cook food due to study and work commitments. could be from lack of access to culturally appropriate food, so you, you might be able to access halal in your neighbourhood, struggling with limited knowledge of the city when you first get here, uh, or a lack of uh, cheap subsidised food on university campuses. This has come out of another study conducted by the University of Melbourne. So what ends up happening is these international students opt for cheaper, less nutritious food. They might look for food relief or support from friends and family. But for those who don't have connections to friends and family or, their, for example, their cultural communities within Melbourne, they can really struggle. Introduce COVID and cost of living uh, pressures, and this really amplifies the problem. And, I mean, just to give you an example, uh, so if you're... If you, if you haven't got enough money, for example, to get public transport, you have to walk to where you buy food and you can only carry so much. And that food has to be accessible within your neighbourhood. Um, students were often very isolated during the pandemic in addition to that. And we also found one other interesting finding there is that they it's the emotional impact of food insecurity. Food reminds people of home. It brings people together. It it it's a part of one's identity. And so having food insecurity amongst international students can present a whole range of challenges and problems. Absolutely. So it's such an important topic, obviously super relevant for us on Represent because we are uni students. Um, and so, you know, we're definitely feeling the pinch, I think, at the moment. Oh, um, yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> despite, I mean, I still live at home, but I still, you know, am experiencing it. Um, so what supports would you, and in the report, um, were recommended for universities and for government to better support international students, but also domestic students generally? Yeah, well, so firstly with international students, we can support them by fostering connections with existing migrant communities, uh, assisting particularly when they recently, when they newly arrived. So having those supports in place when they arrive will really help to build those connections if, for, for no other reason than to know where the good food is that's affordable and culturally appropriate. Uh, we can also improve our provision of food relief, uh, financial support, employment help is one suggestion coming out of the report. So helping them to find the work that will enable them to be able to afford the food or where that's difficult, there could be um, vouchers or scholarships. And importantly for university students, this type of support needs to be provided in between semesters because you know, they might get uh, support from their campuses, but often that pulls back in between semesters. Now, for young people in general, this is a really, really pressing issue. And our data from the Australian Youth Barometer shows 
really strikingly high levels of food insecurity amongst the wider population of 18 to 24-year-olds. This is completely unacceptable. I mean, we can accept that there might have been cost of living pressures in recent years, but I would always make the case that prior to the pandemic, we'd come out of decades of economic growth. And having come out of that period of economic growth and not being able to get sufficient nutritious food is unacceptable in a place like Australia. So it's a real wake-up call. And that wake-up call has become all the more pressing given that we've seen the rising costs of living and the multiple disruptions that young people have had to go through in their education, their employment, their social life over the last few years. Absolutely. So I think it's fascinating um, to note that obviously what you just said, it has come after a period of really strong growth. Um, And then we experienced COVID, which was obviously a shock to the system for everyone. Um, I was wondering what sort of government like initiatives do you think are going to actually push or sorry, that's quite not quite the right way to phrase that um, question. But what sort of occurrences in the community do you think is going to actually push the government to take action? Because we've seen, you know, it's getting worse and worse, the housing crisis, the cost of living crisis, it just keeps on kind of snowballing. Um, Do you think there will be a turning point? Yeah, I hope so. Uh, I'm, I'm not quite sure how much pressure people have to be under before it takes big, bold thinking, for example, about Um, housing and rental assistance. Um, You know, we've seen some promising steps at the federal level in relation to welfare support, but they've been quite tiny amounts and incommensurate with the rising price of food and energy in particular. So responses are going to require really bold decision-making, for example, at uh, addressing the rising cost of rent and affordability of housing, tinkering at the edges, which is what's been going on in policy terms for the last decade, is no longer sufficient. That's, that's at the macro level. The, and another thing at the macro level is the fact that young people are entering more what's called fluid or uncertain labour markets. Now, this isn't a condition that we necessarily have to accept. And so while we're thinking about the freedom and flexibility associated with the gig economy, We also have to be thinking about what kind of security and provisions uh, are there for people in between jobs or for whom working in the gig economy isn't desirable. And we fortunately, we have some thought going on at a federal level about how to respond to that. But this is a longer term trend, very pervasive. Actually, Australia has been slower than some other countries to adopt a kind of gig economy models, but they appear to be growing. So that's employment. At a at an individual level, we have what I could comfortably characterise as a mental health crisis amongst young people. And this requires on-the-ground support, provision of services and support for young people. And where, for example, the federal government recently decided to uh, end the provision of subsidised services for mental health, this is a step backwards as far as I'm concerned that, that, that we need to be growing that. The final thing I'd say is that we can have these macro level policies to do with the labour market and housing, for example, but it's organisations on the ground that are interacting directly with young people that can perhaps do the most benefit. So we've got people organisations in every state and territory in this country 
uh, in Victoria where I'm based, we have organisations like Yakvik who do really good work and understand the needs of young people where they're at. Because when we talk about young people, they defy categorization. They're not. There's great diversity within that within that cohort that we call young people. But those providers on the ground understand their neighbourhoods, understand the needs of particularly young people within those communities, and so it's that targeted localised support that can make a big difference. Yeah, absolutely, and. Um... I think something that sort of keeps coming back in this issue is sort of community and especially within that community, employment. And you said recently to the Herald Sun, uh, youth who couldn't find work or access financial help often found it difficult to complete their studies and apply for jobs or attend interviews, which affected their long-term career prospects. And if you don't have money to buy the suit, you don't have money to buy the laptop. And of course, jobs is something that I think young people are really struggling with to find at the moment. I know a lot of my friends who aren't specifically dealing with this food insecurity, however, but they're still struggling to find jobs. So I can't imagine what it would be like for those people who can't afford those like basic necessities to find a job. So what do you think uh, we could do to help people find employment and help them get into those jobs to the point where they can afford food? Well, there's two things going... Well, there's a bunch of things going on, but two of them that are worth paying attention to is finding a job in the first place, which you've you've just outlined, but also finding secure, desirable work. And getting that secure, desirable work has been a longer-term challenge because we've seen a breakdown in the way, for example, careers are, stru- careers are structured and experienced. We're being told continuously that we're going to change jobs multiple times throughout our lives, uh, we're also told that you know unemployment, though it's creeping up a little bit, is at you know acceptable levels. Well, no level of unemployment, I think, is acceptable. But moreover, underneath that is this insecurity of people moving in between jobs, and if they haven't got the capability to actually front up to a job, you know whether they can't afford the transport or the suit, as I'd mentioned in that article, uh, then we've we've got a real problem. But the source of that, we've conducted other research into careers education and we've found that there's a disjunction between the types of things that young people learn at school and the contemporary job market. So, for example, the type of advice they're getting uh, often is outdated. It's from a model of thinking about careers that belongs to last century, not this one. Uh, it's often steers them into kind of 10 broad occupational fields that doesn't take into account, for example, the high demand for um, health services or, for example, the digital economy, Um, but also the life skills necessary and the resources necessary to be able to actually go out and get work. And this is everything from uh, understanding the job market to preparing for applying for jobs to the actual resources to be able to get jobs, as we've talked about. So there's this disjuncture that's taking place between the ways that young people are prepared in schools and the world post-school. And importantly, in that research, we found that a lot of the time they're getting poor advice from um, family and, and parental networks. That advice also appears to be often outdated and not aligned with the contemporary workforce, or it's steering young people into careers that they don't want to go into. 
because those careers might be highly prized. You know, the 10 occupational fields are things like lawyers, doctors, teachers, uh, whereas entering the arts, for example, might be discouraged despite the fact that that's the young person's passion and <laughs> sometimes they can really make a go of it. You're speaking so to glad. an artist right yeah, here. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up. I'm studying music. <laughs> um, I'm actually, well, I am glad you brought that up. That segued really well into my next question, which was about your um, research into sort of employability after school. Can you tell us a bit about what you've been researching and how that works? Because I think that's something that a lot of young people have experienced is, you know, a careers counsellor telling them something like, oh, I think you should do law because, you know, it pays really well and you got an okay mark in your English essay. And it's like, well, okay. <laughs> But do I care about that? That hits too close. You know, to home I was for me. just very interested in what sort of initiatives um, you might suggest. Well, okay. So, firstly, the research we surveyed a couple of thousand Australians, and we asked them to think about their career identity, their the, the, the way that they the view of themselves that they form in relation to the jobs that they envisage getting post school, and we found what we would expect to find is is a percentage that don't necessarily know what they want to do and I think to some extent that's fair enough. Um, I, I, I'm a professor at a university and I'm still thinking about what I'm going to do when I grow up. Um, but but with, uh, with this career identity formation, we found that there was an enormous pressure placed upon young people who didn't necessarily feel employable, know what employable meant, or as I just mentioned, we're getting this this kind of fairly subpar advice from the people immediately around them or within schools. And a challenge that I haven't mentioned here is that careers education tends to sit at the periphery of schools. And I mean that physically in the sense that, uh, you know, year 12 uh, or careers advisors might be sitting in sort of the year 11 or 12 section of the school that's very intimidating for anyone who isn't in year 11 or 12 <laughs> and at the periphery of, the, uh, of schooling in another sense where we're all focused on that all-important ATAR score at the end. But what about the support after that? Because that's when, you know, many many students will have, have taken a job up while at school, but the serious work of getting work begins post-school and yet there's not a great deal of support that goes on in those in-between periods um, and those in-between periods can extend for, for, for decades and our core argument is that we need to be thinking about careers education that's taking place across the life course that's being delivered to young people in the places where they live accessible via the media and devices that they use and that importantly connects getting a job with the other aspects of life maintaining good mental health and well-being developing a sense of self having confidence all of these things are often not necessarily considered in enough of a deliberate way when thinking about careers education. Yeah, and speaking of careers education, I think it's great you brought that up. We're kind of shifting gears a little bit, but to segue, like you said, the state the state budget was delivered today and there was a lot about careers education in there, specifically funding to support 10,000 students to undertake work experience placements in areas like clean energy. And they're operating six new tech schools that provide uh, hands-on skill education, which is fantastic. Um, so my question would be, uh, what were you sort of hoping for from today's state budget? Is this something that you were hoping for from the budget today? Yeah, I think that I, I think those announcements are welcome. To, to be honest, uh, 
like a lot of people, I was expecting, because the, the, I was expecting a, quite a depressing kind of budget given the amount of savings that governments are seeking to yeah, make. Yeah, I think that's universal. We all were. <laughs> yeah, so, so look, that news is welcome. And to be honest, in some ways we're fortunate to live in Victoria, those of us who are here, because some of the more promising developments in careers education have taken place in Victoria. Uh, the state government set out a youth strategy, which I strongly suggest listeners uh, look up. It's the Victorian Youth Strategy, and, and it sets out these indicators that are quite comprehensive and goals. But also, this kind of financial support to get that experience uh, is really, really valuable because, you know, experience not only enables you to uh, develop social skills, meet people, uh you know, a sense of money in the pocket. They're also really important for helping you to determine what you don't want to do as much as what you do want to do. So we, in our own research, have come across those people who will take up a particular work experience position and go, no, I don't want to go into that particular field. And that's actually really helpful. That's valuable. So supporting young people, and particularly in relation to clean energy, is not only a good move, but a very savvy move. Because our surveys of young people, like many others, see them as putting uh, young people putting climate change right up there at the top of the most pressing issues of our time. Uh, housing affordability is another one. And so addressing that and combining that work experience with clean energy, I think is a good move and a welcome one. Absolutely. And we're going to let you go in a second. Thank you very much for your time. But for, as a final sort of word, what advice would you give to the listener who's struggling at the moment with affording foods and the basic necessities? What would you say to them? Uh, don't be ashamed that, that times are tough and don't be ashamed to reach out. Reach out to uh, local support organisations. You know, the, the, it, it, there's, there's, no, there's no shame in asking for help. We all need help at some point in our lives, often more than once. I can say that personally and directly. And, uh, and so then the first thing is to go overcome the stigma of it and then to start thinking about, well, okay, uh, what do I need to put in place in order to be able to change my circumstances? And sometimes that involves getting advice from other people around you. So reach out in the first instance, get that help, get that mental health support if you can, but also... Um, you know, just reach out. That's the first step. 